The Bob Murphy Show, episode 145. There's a tidal wave coming. What you gonna do? Get ready for another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. The podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. It's your source for commentary and interviews, conducted by a Christian and economist. Now here's your host, Bob Murphy. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. My guest for this episode is Michael Rechtenwald. I'm going to go ahead and read some of his official bio. Dr. Michael Rechtenwald is the author of 10 books, including Beyond Woke, which we cover in this episode, Google Archipelago, The Digital Gulag and the Simulation of Freedom, Springtime for Snowflakes, 19th Century British Secularism, and a few others that I will skip in this summary. Michael was a professor of liberal studies and global liberal studies at NYU from 2008 to 2019. He also taught at Duke University, North Carolina Central University, Carnegie Mellon University, and Case Western Reserve University. His scholarly and academic essays have appeared in the Quarterly Journal of Austrian Economics, Academic Questions, Endeavor, the British Journal for the History of Science, College Composition and Communication, International Philosophical Quarterly, and a few others. He holds a PhD in Literary and Cultural Studies from Carnegie Mellon University, and a master's in English literature from Case Western. So many of you may, in case the name rings a bell, Michael Rechtenwald was at NYU when he ran a Twitter account that was called Anti-PCNYU-Prof, right? So he was in the guise of a, an anonymous NYU professor who was decrying the rampant PC stuff going on on campus. And then he was interviewed by a student newspaper and they revealed his identity with his permission and all hell broke loose. So you have probably heard him on the Tom Woods show. And then Michael also gave a lecture at the Mises Institute at one point. So I'll link to all that stuff, of course, in the show notes page. So this again is bobmurphyshow.com slash 145 to get the links. And let me just mention, so the interesting thing about Michael is at one point he was an actual Marxist and then no longer is one. And so that's what I'm doing in this episode, besides just asking him about his general work now and to recount some of the history, is to try to get his take on some of the campus activism and, you know, that like that worldview, like things that to an outsider seem to be pure contradictions. I present those to him to see, you know, is it just that we, we don't understand the nuances, that that sort of thing, just to the very least, you know, to understand your opponent sort of thing, since I have somebody who used to be a true believer. So without further ado, here is my discussion with Michael Rechtenwald. Well, Michael Rechtenwald, welcome to the Bob Murphy Show. Thanks for having me, Bob. Glad to be here. So I thought it would be good. Uh, most of the listeners probably, if they've heard of you, they know the, the story of, you know, what happened to you at NYU. But I, if you don't mind, I'd like to start a little bit before then, mm -hmm. back when you were a true believer. And I'm wondering you know, what, what was the process? Like, were you interested in English and you went into there and then real, and then were sucked into Marxism or was it vice yeah. versa? Yeah, that's right. I, I wanted to be an English professor. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I had, I had left the undergraduate studies in like 1983 
And then I came back to graduate studies in 1993. So there was a 10-year interim during which I worked in advertising, actually. And uh, when I came back, I noted that uh, the field had dramatically changed. What had happened is what they call the invasion of theory. Mm -hmm. And that was critical theory, which was the Frankfurt School, postmodernist theory, cultural studies. All those things had uh, intervened. And when I came back to it, it was a totally different animal. And, uh, you know, I, I, I liked it, though. I found it quite engaging, to be, to be honest. And so I got slowly drawn in through a lot of classes on uh, critical theory and cultural studies and all, uh, all these different uh, prongs of mm-hmm. postmodern theory. Hey, hey, Michael, would you mind just defining, because people like outsiders, they hear critical studies all the time. What, what does that phrase even mean? Critical theory? Yeah. Critical theory is a, it's a field, I guess, of endeavor uh, initiated by a group of Marxist intellectuals who fled Nazi Germany in 1933, came to the United States, and they set up shop at Columbia first. And uh, so they were Marxists, but they were neo-Marxists. Uh, that is, uh, they they had all but given up the working class, for example, as the um, agent of change. And so they started to look at other things, and they, they started to look at culture. This was a new phenomenon for Marxism, because in Marxism, culture was really an epiphenomenon. It, it really isn't a driving element. In fact, under Marx, there's a base superstructure model. I don't know if this is too technical, but he believes that the economy drives the uh, culture and Mm -hmm. ideas and ideology. And so you didn't need to worry about culture, but they found that you did. And they they wanted to then interrogate culture in order to see what was wrong. Why wasn't socialism spreading? Mm -hmm. Are you talking about the Frankfurt School? Yeah, the Frankfurt School. Okay, okay. Yeah. Okay, and I do I do want to return to this stuff, but first I do want just for the listeners who don't know your your bio, just to you know have you yeah. tell you. But yeah, I did this kind of stuff I do want to come back to in this issue of you know postmodernism versus Marxism and so on. Yeah. So okay, so you were so in your studies, you were you being taught by Marxists? I guess that's one way of putting it. Well, they were they were like Marxists or post-Marxists, and basically mm-hmm. it was just everywhere. I mean, right. even people that didn't overtly avow Marxism had to grapple with it and um can can i ask you so on that topic too like would they have even understood the subtleties of like marx's theory of profit or was it like no it was more of like a um i guess when you got into the i did get in when i i got a i did get into that Mm -hmm. uh when i treat when i studied the frankfurt school but also uh at a seminar called marxisms Mm -hmm. and uh I mean, I ended up knowing more than the professor by this point because, you know, I knew exactly what was, you know, what the theory of uh, labor theory of value and profit and Mm -hmm. surplus extraction and, uh, you know, what exploitation is premised on and all that. And uh, so and, you know, so by then, yeah, we did eventually get to the heart of it in some cases. But a lot of people just carried it around as a kind of underlying ethos like socialism, Mm -hmm. Marxism, of course, there's some. Mm-hmm. There has to be, it has to be dealt with. And, uh, most, most of the, uh, professors were more or less like, uh, shall I say instinctual Marxists. Right. Right. Okay. I mean, is, tell me if this is a good or a bad analogy. Like there's a lot of public intellectuals now who would endorse democracy 
even yeah. though they probably haven't read the Federalist Papers and you know right, right, Tocqueville right. and things like that. Is it is that is it someone like that? Yeah, I mean it's someone like that. They're they're reading later stuff that doesn't get into the political economy. Right. Okay. It, many of them don't know Marx's real critique of the political economy and what he was arguing, and uh, none of them would know anything, for example, about Mises. They wouldn't have a clue. Right. Sure. Sure. Would never okay. even it would never cross their lips, right. let alone their minds. Okay. So. At some stage in your life, did you literally think of yourself as a Marxist? Yes, eventually. Okay. okay. Eventually, I was like, when I went in, I, I went in there and I became like a um, radical, like leftist. And then, uh, you know, eventually, I basically became a Marxist. Okay. Yeah, with postmodernist inflections, we'll put it that way. Okay, great. And yeah. then I was looking at your CV, so I'm wondering if you look now back at you know things you had published, was it? like technically correct and just the Marxism was a thing in your overall worldview or like, do you yeah, that's endorse a good, your that's papers? That's a good question. My, my research ended up with being on uh, 19th century British science mm -hmm. and culture. And I studied uh, like radical English, uh, English radicalism in the 19th century. And then eventually I settled into studying secularism, which drew out of, which grew out of uh, English radicalism in the 19th century. So I became a secularist specialist in the end. Yeah, um, I noticed that word was, isn't a lot of the titles of your yeah. actual so papers. My, my academic publications are not Marxist explicitly. Okay. And yeah. j just so I don't, like, does secularism in that context mean what I think of it means in everyday no, life? No, it's a worldview secularism. Okay. Um, it was a promote, in fact, the term was found, was actually used for the first time by George Holyoke in 1851. And mm -hmm. it meant, uh, this notion that we will concern ourselves strictly with worldly matters in time rather than eternity and this world rather than the next. And it wasn't explicitly atheist. It was um, it was a big tent movement to try to draw together uh, atheist fundamentalists, atheists and uh, liberal theists and things like that. Okay. Okay, great. Um, so at some point, so we know like the, the punchline is going to be, you know, you started your anonymous Twitter account, but I'm wondering, had what things happened, happened is, earlier? Like, I'll, I'll say that yeah. even as a Marxist, I became very annoyed and critical of this identity, of the identity politics. Sure. On the left. Okay. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I noticed that all kinds of things were being shoved down my throat. Uh, like all of a sudden I was a cisgender hetero male. I, I, I mean, where did this come from? And, and it was also uh, a, a term of derogation. It, it meant that I was some, something was wrong with me. Right. And um, in critical race studies and things like that really uh, started to bug the hell out of me. And uh, I was I broke with identity politics first. And then uh, when I did that, when I did it very publicly in an interview with the NYU student newspaper, Mm -hmm. All of the left turned against me simultaneously, including the Marxists, the identity politics left, uh, mm -hmm. li left liberals, all of them. Yeah. So, and, and my, so, and folks, remember the the book we're talking about here, rather, I'm drawing from is his uh, latest Beyond Woke. Um, incidentally, just as a brief change, I had assumed that was your title that you coined, but no, they use that non-ironically. They use that themselves, and I'm. I'm trying to sucker a few of them into buying it by accident. <laughs> Very good. Going back to your advertising days, perhaps. That's right. <laughs> Actually, I did want to ask you, was there anything that, like, did you 
sort of develop a disdain for the masses and how gullible they were in advertising and, and that paid No, I wasn't disdainful mm-hmm. of the masses. I got disdainful of the industry. Okay. Um, uh, I read about that in springtime for snowflakes. And I, I was, uh, funny thing is, as soon as I got rather comfortable in advertising, I had actually was like, I, I, I sort of rose quickly in the ranks and within four years I was doing very well. Mm-hmm. And, um, then I picked up, this book in bookstore, One Dimensional Man by Herbert, Herbert Marcusa, and it just threw a monkey wrench. Um, I, I bought into it. Like I was, everything was one dimensional. I was being, my individuality was being erased by by the by the mm-hmm. capitalist industrial marketplace system. Blah blah blah. You know, and then I got started to think that I was uh, that I was co-opted. That I had been totally mm-hmm. co-opted. So, like I say in springtime for snowflakes, I'm not sure that it was like maybe some leftist meme that had been deeply implanted somehow. Right, right. Uh, and then just came, expressed itself. Am uh, I getting mixed up or is he the guy that taught Angela Davis? Yes, he did. Okay, all right. So that's that. Okay. Um, okay, well, so that's interesting. So then at the NYU, before we, because I do want to talk about how, you know, what happened to you when you went public. Yeah. But am, am I getting the timeline right? Because you tell a story in Beyond Woke about you were on a hiring committee. You know, yeah, that's, the chair that's before I came out. Yeah, yeah. there was a, there was some things that happened in, uh, while I was having uh, these problems with identity politics, leftism, and all that. So I was on a hiring committee, and I was the chair of the committee. And we were to hire a writer, uh, teach, a professor of writing who could teach both academic writing and, and uh, journalism. Mm-hmm. So there was, uh, we had like, uh, you know, a slew of apple, like 400, 400, 500 applications to hire one person, which is typical in academia. For people who don't know, NYU, I mean, because I, I got my PhD in economics there. So wow. they were like top, I think 20. My joke is they were top 20 when I was there and I left, they were top 10. But <laughs> yeah, uh, good for you. <laughs> you really but, did it for them. <laughs> but they, um, but they, for for your thing, for your what was it? Liberal liberal studies was, was that I your in this area? Program called uh, Glo- liberal studies slash global uh-huh. liberal studies. It was kind of like a uh, big economic ecumenical uh, humanities uh, program that was like it was built like a small uh, liberal arts college within the university. Okay. Yeah. But my point for the people who don't know is NYU is a prestigious. It's, pre- it's prestigious and it's really a weird place. It's set up mm-hmm. like a, it's more like a federation of uh, schools yeah. than it is like a university. They're, and they're very disparate. There's tons of overlap. Um, you know, it's, if you want to talk, it's, it's inefficient. If we, we could put it that way. Right, right. Uh, it's, 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 it's bizarre. Yeah. And, and so I'm saying that just so the, the relevance of your story is even more Yeah, shocking. yeah. I'm in, I'm yeah. in a top 20, 25 university. Yeah, right. Um, uh, just, you know, I'm not boasting, but to get my job, I had to beat out 495 people. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was real, um, you know, it was, it was not easy. Right. So uh, I interrupted you. So you're the, the, so the positions higher, for writing. Higher, yeah. I had a textbook in academic writing that I had published and it was used broadly across the country. Still is. I don't know why they haven't banned it yet. Uh, <laughs> but uh, um, so I was I was put on this uh, committee as the chair. And uh, so we got these applicants and the, the, there was a there was four members on the committee. Two of them were very hot about this one applicant who whose letter I, I couldn't even read because it, it didn't make any sense. 
and it was like uh, the prose was just 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 dreadful. I mean, it was first of all, it was the slapdash throwing together a bunch of catchphrases that were popular in the in the university, like from Paulo Freire, the radical uh, leftist education pedagogy theorist, and uh, it was just awful. I mean, it was just awful. So they pushed her through to the last round. And at which point the, the candidate wrote me an email and it was just like, I, I hadn't seen any emails this botched, except even even worse than I would receive from a first year student mm-hmm. in, in their first exchange with me. That's how bad it was. And uh, I said, this candidate can't write. I mean, how right. are we going to teach a, hire a professor for writing who can't write a sentence? Mm-hmm. And uh, I was... Basically, already they presumed I was racist because the candidate was a black female. Mm-hmm. Uh, they passed over a guy that had uh, graduated with a PhD at UC um, L- at UCLA, actually, and he, you know, it's a top ten English department. He had stellar credentials, and they just passed him over. They passed over, and they pushed this candidate through, and um, uh, so it was just this uh, thing where this woman attacked these other candidates purposefully uh, during these interviews, like belligerently attacked another faculty member on the hiring committee. committee, Yeah. Yeah. She belligerently attacked these other. And I just said that was outrageous. And she got up and started swinging at me Mm -hmm. (laughs) and uh, I'd left the room. It was all I could do was to leave the room. Right. I went to the Dean's office and I said, "Uh, there's a problem on this committee. I mean, I, I, I was literally swung at, by one, you know, by this certain person, and uh, basically, I got pushed off the committee. Yeah, and they they, they, the in the book, you say he, the dean said to you, "Well, it's complicated." <laughs> he said it was complicated, and I said, "Complicated? Yeah, complicated." What he meant was, we can't do anything disciplinary to this person. Furthermore, you can't be on the committee anymore. In fact, you were chair. Now you're nothing. You're off. And so mm-hmm. they went on to hire this woman, woman that I mm-hmm. disputed her credentials. They hired her. It, it, am I, she only did she just have a bachelor's? Am I remembering she had that correctly? A PhD, but it, okay, I mean, that one did. Thing is, yeah. like she had taught at Rutgers, and uh, like uh, her evaluations there were like, no, no, rate my professor is not official, but the the thing is, it actually matches very closely the rankings in uh, the ratings of students in in official ratings. Mm-hmm. They're very close. They they're almost like a they're maybe a point one off here and there. Mm-hmm. Hers were like ones, you know, I mean, like and lambasting her like this is the worst professor on earth. And uh, she she made me hate writing and I've mm-hmm. become a worse writer. I, I, my writing is worse than it ever was and things like that. They hired her. And, uh, you know, that was just like one of the imbroglios that I, I was like, this this is insane. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Well, and, and something else you mentioned that generally speaking, it's there's this idea that, oh, there's a glut of PhDs, but you were saying for a, a lot of these things, it's because it's on the demand side, they're not hiring PhDs. Yeah, a lot of the times what they're doing is they'll, they'll actually hire, hire like people with a BA degree over a PhD. So this, this, this so-called glut of PhDs, it's not about the overproduction. It's actually that they prefer less qualified people. Because then they can pay them less. You got mm-hmm. some sort of fly there bugging you. Yeah, they I can, know. I was going to say for the people watching the video, I'm not going crazy. There's just this fly <laughs> that keeps. <laughs> they, uh, so no, I'm talking about for like adjuncts, you know, uh, mm-hmm. when people will, in New York will die for any position at NYU. So even adjuncting is fine for them. 
mm-hmm. adjuncting is part-time temporary and you get paid much less and there's uh, the benefits are shaky. Let's put it that way. Um, so uh, they would hire these, they hired, for example, a BA, a BA from off the street in effect. They mm-hmm. might as well have put a stand outside and said, anybody want a job at NYU? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, they, they hired somebody that had no credentials at all and passed over hundreds of like people coming out of Stanford and other Ivies and things like that. Just craziness. Yeah, yeah. So you started a an anonymous Twitter account, and that was originally how you, you vented and That's right. commented it was on this stuff. Anti-PC NYU prof. Okay. And I started tweeting criticism of all, of all this. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah. What was it? I'm just curious. Was it like your take on the, the country as a whole, or was it like specific? Yes, it like today on campus, I saw this. Yeah, the stories were pouring in from all over the country about all this. Uh, like the safe spaces, the the bias reporting of hotlines, mm-hmm. uh, which uh, if your listeners don't know, it's like when you, they actually set up these hotlines and now they're in like 260 universities where you can report somebody's bias infraction to this mm-hmm. bias response team and they adjudicate this these infractions behind closed doors and uh, who knows what happens. Uh, but... You know, so it's kind of like a stall. Well, I'm sure there's a fair and equitable hearing, right? Oh, yeah. It's (laughs) it's crazy. So to me, it made the whole place like uh, the chilling effect was ridiculous. Right, right. They're advertising this all over the place. And they never even once defined any of the terms like bias, bias infraction, uh, microaggression. I mean, they just said Mm -hmm. there's this bias hotline. If you spot a bias, call this line or email Mm -hmm. this thing. And soon enough, they were creating apps in different universities where at Harvard, you just open your phone, click on the app and report the bias. And there you go. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So I thought this stuff was and the, of course, the no platforming, you know, like the driving speakers out. I, I was just criticizing all this stuff. And okay. the Halloween costume business where. Sure. Right. Uh, Appropriation. You could, be, you could change your gender. Wait a minute. Let me get this straight. You can change your gender. From here between now and tomorrow, and, and you got to be called that in the classroom, but you can't wear a, ha- a Halloween costume for one night. Uh, so, you know, just yeah. you change your identity and entirely, but you can't wear ex- you can't wear a Halloween costume that might offend somebody. So it, it's just all the craziness. And, uh, you, you know, they were taking down like uh, dioramas with gorillas because they were too masculinist and uh, this this was just beginning in 2016. Now, at this point, it's off the rails. Sure, sure. So, a again, I know you've had to tell the story several times, so I'll, I'll keep it short here, but just for the listeners who don't know the background. So then yeah. a student somehow Twitter, tracked, uh, tracked you down? I create this Twitter account. Right. The student reporter tracks me down, says, are you really? I was anonymous at this point. Are you really an NYU prof? I said, yes. Oh, this is interesting. Do you want to? be interviewed and i said i'll talk to you i'm not sure i'll go on the record and i Mm. I, uh, talked to her Uh, i thought i was what i said was fine i may drop an f-bomb here and there Mm -hmm. but uh, otherwise what i said was actually actually i was still talking from the left right i was still criticizing like all this from from a marxist standpoint Mm -hmm. Uh, and uh, i was saying like it divides the working class it's about identity is no you know, these identities are no politics to, to organize around, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's craziness and, and things like that. Well, that's interesting. So like that, that, if you could spend a moment on that, so that we, we, along the lines of 
how are, you know, white and black and homosexual heterosexual workers all supposed to rise up against their common enemy, the capitalists? Right. They, they want us divided like this. Especially when you're dividing yeah. them against each other. Right. Uh, and, uh, and privileging some and then, you know, basically demonizing others. Mm-hmm. A lot of demonization, just, you know, like the, the inexpiable sin, original sin of whiteness, you know, the one mm-hmm. you can't, there's no redemption for. Right. Um, that you're 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 doomed for life. So yeah, things like that. And uh, I even said in the interview, I'm a communist. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. so I'm saying all this as a communist. That didn't help. Right. Uh, so within two days, I was called into the dean's office because just for the li- so you had we gone in thinking you might be anonymous, but then you told her, you know, go ahead and publish my name. I let her publish it. Yeah, yeah under, with okay. my name. And she she, she right. shot a picture. Of, she had a photo of me, and I was laughing in the picture. Uh oh, which, yeah. which was really a double heresy. I was like, mm-hmm. I was just scoffing at them, right? Right, right. And uh, so I ran, and uh, within two days of that interview running, I was I was in the dean's office with the head of human resources, mm-hmm. and they were strong arming me to take a leave of absence. And uh, then while I was in that interview, I didn't know this, but I was there was also a letter from a committee published. Uh, an open letter denouncing me, uh, in which they called me guilty for my thoughts, um, mm-hmm. literally. So yeah. I was, you know, accused the wrong thing, and uh, and the dean tried to accuse me of being insane. Like you must, you know, you need a break. Uh, you know, this right. is people are worried about you and things like this. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I'm like, I'm worried about them, frankly. Right. <laughs> can I, can I ask you how how long had you been doing that? account on you know and running an announcement before the like reporter tracked months, you down. Maybe. Okay, maybe, okay. Maybe even yeah, like it was this this came out in October. So it was like maybe a month and maybe five weeks roughly. Do you know was it was the account per se that big a deal? Like on like did you hear people after talking the, about after, it? After the interview okay. it became a big deal and they started you know how they do they go riffling through your tweets. Right, right. Okay. And finding some some egregious thing. One one tweet was probably the furthest I pushed the envelope, just to be real open about it. I said that uh, I, I can imagine, this was when Trump was emerging, you know, as the leading mm-hmm. candidate. In fact, he was he was nominated. And I said, you know, imagine the uh, social justice warriors in their dormitories ready to jump out the window. And okay. I said, let's only hope. And mm-hmm. uh, that was used as a endorsement of suicide. Right. And yeah. it was totally a joke. There were, I had no student followers at this time. Mm-hmm. They they pointed out the tweet to the students. They never would have seen it without them pointing it out. Right. So they were more guilty of encouraging suicide than I was. Right, right. <laughs> I yeah. was I was making a joke. Yeah. Okay. Anybody, anybody would know that. And ask and you're for the listener to get a flavor of. So that was like the most provocative thing you did. So right. was that? Yeah. Okay. Um. And so then, you know, they. What was interesting is they didn't like fire you or, you know, no, you, no, no, they didn't fire me. Mm-hmm. And I was up for promotion to full professor at this time. And the, the whole thing rested on these administrators. Uh, despite I had, they had committee, a committee form to evaluate the candidates, but I had no idea what was going on. It was six months in waiting. Mm-hmm. And, um, I was, I got the impression that if I didn't take the leave of absence, not only might I lose my, uh, chances to be promoted to full professor, I might lose my job. Right. So the leave was really, I was really strongly pressured into taking mm-hmm. it. Totally their idea. Mm-hmm. 
they came up with this idea, we'll get them off campus like this. You right. know, just kind of hope, let things cool off and yeah. Something so, like that. Yeah. So then you, so you did come back then and you were not welcomed with open arms. No, I was shunned by a hundred faculty members. And I want to stress this because people hear that and they, you know, they think it might mean one thing. Is it literally true that they wouldn't get on an elevator with you? Yes. Wouldn't get on an elevator, wouldn't let me on it with them either. Well, no, I hadn't heard that part. What does that mean? The, the door's I mean, like, open you and you want to step in? You do not come in here. You'll violate my personal space if you come in here. Really? I will report you if you come in here. Yes. <laughs> so, you know, they tried to, I mean, they just made me a total pariah. They acted uh, like I was some sort of an endanger to their uh, well-being. Right, like you had a communicable disease or something. Right. So that, okay, that is more information because what I was going to ask you back when I I assumed what it meant was if they saw you on the elevator, they were like, yeah, I'll catch the next one. Thanks. No, no, no. That, I was, I was, okay. I, what I thought it was just that somebody would be afraid to be seen with you no, because then people might me think. To get on the elevator. I see. Okay. And uh, then they moved my office to the Russian department. Mm-hmm. Uh, after this, uh, I was assailed in this email list official email list where they called me every name you can imagine. Mm-hmm. Um, Nazi, alt-right, racist, sexist, white, uh, short pants, white devil, all kind of crazy shit, all in capital letters screaming. Mm-hmm. And I never, I never responded in kind at all. I just said, you know, this is typical for the uh, mob right? You know, and things like that to mob on, you know, blah, blah, blah. I mean, uh, so instead of, uh, instead of chastising or punishing those people that did this, they they moved me to the Russian department in like I call it my personal gulag, right? <laughs> because they put me in this room with metal shelves and no books. They wouldn't move my books. And yeah, that's was, something I read in the book that I hadn't heard in previous. So you were you know, your original office. You have all your books there. They relocate yeah, you. It was a lot of books, and you know I right. couldn't carry them. It was like a model. This NYU is very spread out, as you know. Right. Right. The other office was like a mile away. I couldn't get them over there, you know. Right. So normally they'd put in a work order and some guys yes. would come and box it up and move it yeah, over. Box it yeah. up, bring it over. Not only yeah. that, I had no no support staff, no secretarial staff, no copier machine, nothing. Mm-hmm. Not that I use a copier, but I mean, I might have. Right. Uh, it's a basic uh, total isolation. They were trying to totally isolate me uh, on campus. Mm-hmm. And did were you teaching classes? Yeah. I taught classes, but I couldn't go to any do any committee work. Mm-hmm. Uh, for those who don't know, like there's basically three parts to an academic job: you teach, you do service, which is committees and, and things like that, and you have publish. Um, so I was doing two of them, but I never I couldn't do any service work because no one would be no one would be on a committee with me, nor would they be mm-hmm. able, in a committee on which I was on. They would quit. I, and I wondered. I was going to ask you, did. Uh... Did you notice a change in the attendance in your classes? No, not at all. Or not attendance, I meant enrollment. No, in fact, okay. my enrollment never went down. In fact, they, uh, my enrollment would sell out, as I might say, within minutes of, of the classes going live where you could enroll. Mm-hmm. And so I would get requests from students all the time. Can, can I get in your class? Can you add me in anyway, even though it's over the limit? Right. Things like that. Before this happened, you were saying and you were after, a popular teacher. And after. Right, but I'm saying the baseline. It's not that this made you popular. Change. In yeah, fact, it was, if anything, yeah. it went up. Okay. Uh, some of them were like, I want to know what this guy's about. Right, because they had <laughs> heard of you. Yeah. Right, yeah. 
So he might be like, yeah, like Sam Kinison and back to school. Um, so are you, I, I'm curious, like and try to understand the what seems to us obviously is like this ludicrous response to what your alleged defense was. Yeah. Is it possible that a lot of them heard things that you had done or said that weren't true and just- Oh, they made up things. Yeah, they mm -hmm. made all these things up. They never so, said anything explicit. They just well, called um, me names. But but do you see what I'm saying? Like maybe the people who were shunning you, maybe people had, maybe they'd heard through oh, the yes. grapevine. Oh yes, what happened, yeah. it, was, it was kind of a herd response, right? So mm -hmm. they knew that once a few provocateurs vilified me, everybody thought, well, we better do the same or else, you know, maybe we'll be counted among them. Right. You know, mm -hmm. so it became just, you know, it's very much of a groupthink response. Okay. But, but also could be supplemented with, if they had heard specific things that weren't true, but thinking, wow, that guy really is a monster. Do you know he he said he wished all his students would kill themselves? You know, that kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah, things like that. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you know, yeah. Okay. Um, one of the things I liked in your book was you have this uh, chapter on, on why corporations are so woke. Yeah. And it was an interesting, so to, there's, I can't remember his exact terminology, but I was watching one time this interview with Jordan Peterson mm -hmm. and the, they were, you know, it was like a panel discussion or something. It was, it was very friendly. Like yeah. everybody, and they were talking about these issues about, you know, wow, these, these modern postmodernists, you know, they reject logic and science. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. and she, Peterson, again, it's not an exact quote, but he said something like they know exactly what they're doing. Mm -hmm. Okay. I mean, so what he meant was th these other people were kind of like rolling their eyes and chuckling right. at these morons. Right. And he said, no, you're misunderstanding. And so that's what I liked about your corporation thing. I think a lot of us, like in the libertarian camp, when the corporations, you know, had these goofy commercials that are just, you know, appealing to the leftist mm -hmm. uh, buzzwords, yeah. we just think, oh, they're just foolishly chasing no. it, you know, clients or customers and they're those fools. They don't know what exactly. they're doing. Exactly. And that's not what you said. Uh, just placating the lefts. Hopefully they don't get canceled. Um, you know, hopefully, you know, they assuage a few people, you know, mm. and, and please their customer base plus word off activists, et cetera, et cetera. I, I don't know. I don't think that's a, a, I find that explanation is not sufficient. It's okay, interesting, so, but it's not mm, sufficient. Yeah. I yeah. So yeah. What's your, what's your this, this well, my story? My take is that it's part of, it's that woke capitalism is the expression of corporate socialism and, and, and that it actually helps them to establish, uh, it works as part of a monopoly scheme. It's part of their whole idea to destroy uh, other, you know, other competitors, to get rid of competitors. Now, uh, there's a bit of, there's a, there's a lot of think, you know, connections that I have to make them to make that clear. I don't know if you want to go there. Uh, yeah. I mean, if you're, if you're willing to, yeah, I'd love to hear you. Elaborate well, everything on that. about the left, all the prongs of leftism match up with corp, with the globalist corporate interests uh, of, of monopolistic uh, corporations. For example, they're anti-nativist. Mm -hmm. uh, the left. Let's just keep. Let's just take the left. Some of their contemporary views. They're they're anti-nativist. They're pro, um, gen. You know, polygenderism and transgenderism, and and all. They're anti-family. You saw this with Black Lives Matter. They've came out and denounced the family. They're uh, pro-immigration to the point where anybody can come here at any time. Mm -hmm. And like open borders. Yeah. Total open borders. Well, this happens to line up pretty well with the interests of these global corporations. It actually suits them just fine. And then if you look at the lockdown, for example, and uh, the riots combined, I mean, what has it done but destroyed what? 
so far there's they're saying 7.5 million small businesses will never reopen 50 percent of small businesses are going to be wiped out this was projected by the fee by the mm-hmm. um foundation for economic education yeah that's right um they they, they basically project this this out so it looks like um it just so happens that their interests line up with the left pretty well. So I call it corporate leftism. Now, this is not anti-free market. This is, uh, anti, you know, what I'm talking about is kind of collusion between the state and these corporations. Mm-hmm. And their expression of uh, woke capitalism is not merely some sort of placating PR routine. It, it actually serves their interests directly. Okay, so I'm looking here at your bullet points. You, you, I think the yeah. only one you didn't say there is, is globalism or in Marx's terms, internationalism. Internationalism, right. That's yeah. what Marx, you know, Marxism right. is international. Okay, so let me just go through this. So clearly, yeah. I, I think it's List, yeah. straight straightforward how a global multinational corporation would be for globalism. Unrestricted immigration because they get cheap labor. Right. Um, and so, the, you know, that's that's fine. The the last two, um, I'm not saying I disagree, but I can you say more on... It's not obvious to me at first glance why would major corporations who just want to make money care? How does it help them to promote transgenderism well, and getting rid of the family? These are markets. Okay. Uh, this is a huge market in the pharmaceutical industry, for example, transgenderism. There's a huge market for these uh, transitioning drugs and for surgeons mm-hmm. uh, and plastic surgeons. And so all of this, this feeds into one of the major sectors, the pharmaceutical and uh, medical industry. So these are niche markets that they that they welcome, um, and uh, it's these are bigger markets than you might think. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, there's there's a, a huge huge increase in this transgender uh, identification. I mean, it, it's it's at, well, I don't if I say it's epidemic, it'll it sounds like a disease, but it's enormous. Let's put it that way, and. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's, uh, I, I, I glanced through a book that said basically people, young, uh, young adults who would otherwise identify with having anxiety, depression, and other types of ailments are now basically suggesting that they're transgender. So it's become a sort of default position to take for any psychological disturbance at all. Okay, so that's... Um that's very interesting, and I I love those types of explanations. That because you're right, like on the surface of it, to just say, oh, they're you know, and there there was some superficial plausibility. Like, hey, if you got this five percent of your customers who are going to flip out and organize boycotts, if you yeah, if you cross that, them, and the other ones won't. But I'm not yeah. saying that's not a factor. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying it's not sufficient. It, it's a right. It, it's it's certainly an, it, it's certainly a factor, but it doesn't explain everything. And the other thing it doesn't explain is how the promotion of these ideas actually might hurt them in the long run, but it doesn't, so. Well, and I was going to ask, um, isn't there a notion in Marxism about, like, we'll, we'll give them the rope with which they hang themselves? So I'm wondering, yeah. like, do a lot of these corporations, they think they're going to be able to stop short, but not Capitalists realize Capitalists sell us the rope with which we'll hang them. Yeah, yeah. And so, so the left believes, uh, but first of all, the, the left is very pro-monopoly, whether they say so or not. Why? Because mar- they want to make it quite simple to locate the major, um, so, you know, consolidation of capital. So if, if you have it consolidated easily in monopolies, then it's easier to expropriate it, uh, mm-hmm. to take it back. Uh, Marx 
thought that monopolization was an inevitable function of capitalism and mm -hmm. that it eventually that, you know, you would have monopolization period and it was inexorable. It had to go that way. So, you know, for example, I just read an article by in the Jacobin, which is a democratic socialist uh, organ, and they denounce small business and they say they're, you know, promoting small business is a bad idea because corporate big corporations pay more and they, you know, they're more allowed, uh, more amenable to unions. And so they actually favor monopolization, strangely. Okay, so it serves mm -hmm. the corporates. The left serves the corporates and the corporate serves the left. Right. Which right. is very, you know, I mean, that's a lot of people will be like, yeah, what's so that's obvious, but it's not obvious to the left. <laughs> right. No, it's, and it's not obvious to at least young right wingers as well, because right. I remember like uh, Ayn Rand has this, essay, I think it's an essay where she says like big business is America's most persecuted minority and at first, like, you understand what she means, but the more yeah. you think about it, like, no, actually, big business is not. They, it's you know, there's all kinds of regulations, cities. right, where they, uh, things like just, uh, you know, like after the accounting scandals in the early 2000s, you know, yeah. and they passed Sarbanes-Oxley, like, all, big companies were all for that because they have teams of accountants. It's easy for them to comply sure. with that stuff, sure. whereas it's yeah, the, you know, and, the, yeah. the middle and, people. As, and regulations are, are beneficial to them, so, mm -hmm. because the cost of entry becomes so much higher. So, you know, regulation serves corporate monopolization right. or I'm not talking about, you know, de facto monopolies. I'm talking about a tendency towards monopoly. Right, right. And also, like, I think some of the real wealthy families, when the income tax was pushed through, like they were for a graduate income tax, because if, if you've already made your wealth and you're you know going to pass it on to your kids and you control an industry, a very cripplingly high income tax yes. is a way to kneecap any competitors to That's ensure right. your dominance. So it's yeah. I, got, I got this idea, I mean, and I'd be real honest about it, is uh, reading Anthony Sutton and his trilogy on all this. Uh, Anthony B. Sutton, he wrote three books dealing with this strange, this strange uh, animal called corporate socialism. And he noted that, and I think he's right, that uh, they funded the social, they funded the Bolshevik revolution. They were behind FDR and they were also funding Nazis. So in all cases, they were funding uh, either progressivism or socialism. So how do you explain that? You know, right, right. And he explained it by virtue of the fact that what, what, what socialism has in common with monopolization is they're both monopolies. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right, right. Can you, since you just brought it up, can, would you mind, because again, for people who never heard this stuff, that this sounds like, you know, crazy Alex Jones stuff. It's not the, because, the, I mean, this is very empirically based. Sure. Oh, I know that. Right. But so can you just speak a little bit about the this funding of the Bolshevik Revo Revolution and how? Yes. I mean, okay. There's, there's, there's some, there's some, uh, shall we say, um, evidence that Trotsky, for example, when he came to New York, which he did. Uh, that he left with a pile of money, and that money was possibly uh, delivered by what what Sutton will call corporate socialists. And so there was a lot of, uh, and then uh, Lenin also had a shipment of gold sent to him. There was plenty of evidence that uh, bankers in not only the United States, and by the way, not just Jewish bankers, I want to make this clear. It was mm -hmm. from e England, Germany, and the United States. Uh, they crossed all ethnicities, you know, I mean, not all ethnicities, but they, they weren't 
Jewish. Okay, so I'm not promoting some sort of Jewish conspiracy thing. Right. But the Rockefellers were involved uh, and others. And uh, so they basically sent a lot of money to the Bolsheviks to fund their enterprise, uh, without which they would have gotten nowhere. Now, I'm trying to remember, was the immediate aim because they wanted to help but they wanted Germany? They wanted a captive market. And okay. that is, they, they, wanted to, they wanted to sort of have an amalgam between state socialism and corporate monopoly in that state. Uh, so that they would handle some industries. And they did. They ended up pulling out a lot of resources, natural resources, uh, mining, uh, wood, uh, things like that. They got monopolies over certain uh, raw materials. They never did set up their, you know, monopolies within it. But mm-hmm. they worked to. Uh, they may have uh, may have been a bad gamble in that case, but they did try. Okay. Okay, so for... Th- at least for the groups you're talking about, it was it didn't have anything directly to do with World War One. Like the issue wasn't we got to take Russia out of the war. This was more something that would have happened no. independent. Okay, yeah, it wasn't about the war. Uh, although there was a some of the sport can be explained with reference to the anti-Tsarist sentiment uh, among Jews, a Jewish mm-hmm. uh, businessman in the United States, that the Tsar was persecuting Jews. So there was something to that. There was persecution of Jewish people by the czar. So they thought, what could be worse? Mm -hmm. Uh, Could these Bolsheviks be better? Okay. In terms of that. Okay. Hey, everyone. Let's just take a break from the discussion for me to mention. If you like what you're hearing and you want to hear it more frequently, then I encourage you to support the show. For details, go to bobmurphyshow.com slash contribute. Thanks. If we can pivot now... I wanted to have you speak a bit to this. So there's a, well, I'll go ahead and just read the quote and then have you expand. Yeah. So from your book, again, the book folks that we're talking about is Beyond Woke. You say, wokeness is analogous to the Christian encounter of being saved. Like being saved, being woke involves redressing transgressions through repentance and reformation. And as the Christian is saved, not by works, but into works. So the newly converted social justice believers are woke, not by works, but into woke works. So uh, if you could at least, you know, explain the specifics of that, but then more generally, I do want to just talk to you about this because a lot of people have noted the religious overtones or feel of a lot of these movements. Yeah. um, Yeah. There's a religiosity to it. Um, There's the sense that when you become woke, you find out you've been a transgressor. Mm -hmm. You have sinned uh, in attitude and small mannerisms and any in speech and actions and negligence and just not being aware of how uh, oppressed a certain group is, right? Um, So there's this awakening to conscience of your sinfulness, uh, which is very analogous to the the awakening to sinfulness uh, of of being saved. Uh, The only difference is that under wokeness, uh, there's no, as I said before, there's no ultimate forgiveness. There's no redemption, you know. Mm -hmm. For, for the white uh, person, for example. And critical whiteness states, critical white studies and uh, critical race theory to basically make it a, a really uh, inescapable dilemma for a white person. You're, mm-hmm. you're just indicted and the indictment is not, you can't, you can't do anything about it. So I, I, I think that this really explains a lot of the, uh, r- really strange behavior on the part of white advocates 
in Black Lives Matter and their violence because when you're indicted like that, you're like pinned to the mat. It's mm-hmm. it's like you're being cornered. So what are you going to do? You're going to thrash out. But if you thrash out at the people that pinned you, you're a racist. So you right. thrash out at other white people so that, you know, you can mm-hmm. you can um, you can vent your anger uh, for for this indictment on others. Right. Um, now, does this because of the re- the religiosity of it? Yeah. Does that explain the hostility of the left towards Christianity, or is it yes, much it's deeper a than that? Yeah, it's a competing mm-hmm. okay. religious creed. Definitely. Okay. okay. And it's, it's one that uh, seems to appeal to the other side, as it were. Okay. Okay. And. Let me ask you, and then I, of course, I, but there is a woke Christianity too. I mean, I shouldn't neglect to say that. Well, well yeah, and that's kind of because recently, just for the uh, your background, Michael, because I had recently done a thing on why the left hates Christianity, and I was going through some of the obvious, you know, things on the surface of, of you know the family stands in the way somebody who believes in God is you know willing to die for his beliefs. You know, they kind of not the right sort of citizen that the left wants to follow their orders. That's right. But beyond that, I was getting into things like, you know, if you think about postmodernism and deconstructing language and that sort of thing, well, Jesus is the logos. And so that that's seems right. like, you know, and it's a patriarchal religion, mm-hmm. right? So right. it's all patriarchs and even mm-hmm. admi- by admission, it's a patriarchal religion. You have right. Abraham, Moses, Jesus. I mean, these are all patriarchs. So, and everything about Christianity, you know, you have the supposed submission of the woman to the man in St. Paul. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have all these types of patriarchal edicts and so forth, that God is a man also. He's a patriarch. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, there's patri- patriarchal. But, uh, patriarchal. But, but on that, what I was tr- where I was thinking, though, is every, those sorts of things would also be true for Islam, and yet the left is very tolerant of Islam. Oh, totally. Yeah, that's a very strange uh Issue and I think there's two factors that explain it. One is mm-hmm. cultural relativism, mm-hmm. uh, which is uh, rife in uh, you know anthropology and sociology, but mostly comes out of anthropology. And that is, you, you can't judge another's culture and their values because doing so is a cultural is a form of uh, ethnocentrism mm-hmm. uh, and is a pretext for cultural imperialism. Uh, so you can't negatively assess a culture that's other than your own you have no standpoint from which to do it and then the second factor is uh, the enemy of my enemy is my friend um, since islam hates the west and imperialism and capitalism and the white man and all that mm-hmm. he's mm-hmm. our buddy because we hate the same people okay right that makes sense okay um well let me now's a good time i guess to ask because you, you touched on some of this stuff I want to, as somebody who, you know, came out of that worldview, it's, you know, in other words, like, like it's hard for me to pass the Turing test of a postmodernist Marxist, what I, what have you, since I, you know, I could take like, it. I could definitely, right. So I can try to be, yeah, I can try to be fair, but I really don't know how they think. So there's certain things where to an outsider, at least it looks like there's an obvious contradiction. And I'm wondering if you can, so you just mentioned one, like cultural relativism. It seems like you're not allowed to criticize any culture except European. Your own, yes. Right, so is, is, that, is that, is there a contradiction there or oh, does yes, it actually absolutely. make sense? Because mm-hmm. they say, they say all cultures, you know, no culture is better than any other, but the Western culture is particularly evil. Uh, so that's a definite contradiction. So we have to be, 
we have to have a relativism with reference to cultures. None is better than the other, but the West is the worst. Mm-hmm. Now, so I guess one way of me asking it, like, do you remember back when you were a true believer? Like, did that possible tension ever occur to you? And how would you have resolved it? Do you have any idea? Well, I, I didn't. I didn't resolve it. I know how I resolve it now, but yeah. Okay. Human rights are individually based. They can't be otherwise. Sure. Okay, but but at the time, had something like that occurred to you? Like any of those contradictions, or was that not really? Not really, because I was I was dealing in so I was I was intoxicated with the high level theorizing and right. um, mm. not so much the practical politics yet. Right. And and you alluded to another seeming contradiction or at least tension earlier in this discussion. We're talking about the Halloween costume. That on the one hand, it's like the ultimate expression of individuality to the point where you know outsiders aren't even allowed to put labels on you. Like you you know they but yet if you want to express your individuality by putting on, uh, you know, dressing up like, like in, uh, a Native American. Up, if you wanted to dress up as a woman now, okay, as mm-hmm. a white man or any man, uh, that would be uh, totally verboten because it's an attack on transgenderism. But you could become a woman tomorrow or tonight for that matter. Yeah. Okay. So, so there, like, is that the distinction? Like, again, I, I know we might think disagree with the whole thing, the but I'm, I'm trying to say, is, is it one a, is suffering and the other's not, you know, one is, one is just enjoying it and the other is suffering over it. Um, so there's, there's gotta be a modicum of subordination and suffering involved to be celebrated by the left. Everything has to be the sufferer. Um, in, you know, Nietzsche talked about all this very well. This is very similar to their uh, to resentment ideology. But the, where does the suffering emanate from? From the fact that you were born in the wrong thing and yes. so you were mislabeled? Yes. Okay. So that's why even and, a, and a woman— society mm-hmm. doesn't accept you as such. Okay. So that's even why a, a trans man is still celebrated, even though it's becoming a more— moving from the less dominated into the— to, to, Or sorry, yeah. the dominated to the dominant— Yes, is still even okay. that's celebrated because you're, you're trapped in the wrong body, which is already— uh, a form of uh, suffering, and then you are then ridiculed, they say, by the wider culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you're not allowed to be, so I don't see where the ridicule is, but yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, so here's another one that I'm curious if you can shed some light on this and whether you think it's just a total contradiction or like, no, given the way they think it actually kind of makes sense, is you're, you know, you're allowed to, to change genders, things like this. There's even... Stuff where you know, if, if you think you're a squirrel, you can be a squirrel. <laughs> oh yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. Quite, quite literally. I'm not like people yeah, yeah, yeah. making fun of them. There's, uh, there's fr- the furry movement, and there's yeah. uh, you know, there's, there's all kinds of stuff. But yeah. my understanding is, if you are born white, you are not allowed to That's say right. I am black. That's correct. Like, like I done so. Rachel Dose, those those mm-hmm. or whatever her name is, Rachel Dozel, she couldn't become black. Uh, was not allowed because that's mm-hmm. a transgression. And that is a contradiction. In fact, uh, uh, this came out in uh, Hypatia Philosophical Journal when a uh, assistant professor of philosophy challenged this contradiction. She was destroyed. Uh, now, was she doing it from within? Like she was sympathetic? Yes, just from within okay. and saying, you know, I don't really see why there's a distinction between transgenderism and transracialism. They're both they're the same sort of change. They're the same sort of move. It's the same sort of crossing over identity boundaries. And mm-hmm. especially in the case of a man becoming a woman, it's moving to a subordinated status. 
voluntarily. So mm-hmm. uh, it was totally she she got uh, lambasted by the feminists. Uh, they called her a turf. That's a trans exclusionary radical feminist. Uh, that's like a once you get that label, you're ruined. Uh, right. So I'm curious as to what your thoughts is it. I mean, so one thing that occurs to me as to why that happened is just at least in U.S. politics. I can't speak for the rest of the world. Uh, like with the civil rights movement, there, there's such vested interest in political power associated with like anti-racism and whatnot that you just can't let outsiders walk in and become black. Yeah, but even that doesn't work because there's okay. a huge amount of uh, political power invested in feminism too, and yet they let men. Uh, into feminism or what were men and you have right. basically people with penises running feminism now i mean that's that's yeah. simple so you want to talk about the patriarchy take you know taking over they have just by in disguise if you will okay so then what and i'm i i, I hear what you're saying and so what and there is like a mild backlash of especially like in sports Yes, there where, is some backlash. Yeah, some, but even but even there, it's very it's we're very tough. Having it, yeah, we're not yeah, having it. Mm-hmm. That's enough, and uh, you know, we're not going to have you in our spaces. We're not going to have you taking over our our sports. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're not going to have you in our bathrooms. We're we're, we're you know, they're but they're 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 denigrated by by the broader culture. There. Right, but but you you are correct that there it's more of a there was the just for the lack of better term invasion and then a counterattack. Whereas right at the the gates of the, right who, who the is the black community, they're saying, no, you're not coming in here. You can't do this. And you so I'm wondering what and is they made your, up all kinds of vague and ridiculous notions, but mostly this slur. They just slur you with a label and that's it. They don't really, you know, so there's a lot of disingenuous uh, rationalizations for what they do. And I, I don't follow it because it's so absurd. Uh, but but uh, my question is why... For, forget whether the rationalizations are are plausible or not, but I'm yeah. just is a phenomenon that that intrigues why, me. Like, wh- why, why did it happen there, but nowhere where else? Uh it's it's really it's really hard to say. I guess it's because the Af- you know blacks are more subordinate, possibly uh, because it's a category engendered with a great deal of political power as a subordinate group, probably. And you can't have their lived experience. Uh, that's the big key, lived experience. But I don't know how, I guess when you're transgender and you're male, you're actually having the lived experience of a woman without being one, uh, ostensibly. Uh, so I guess that's the distinction they would draw. Okay, okay. Um, lived experience is everything in critical race theory and all that. That's why no matter what you say, it can't be right because you don't have the lived experience of those who who are in that category. So therefore, everything you say, even if it's logical, is racist. Okay, so you want an example? Yeah, totally. Okay, so let's say there was critical race theory. One of the inaugural texts in critical race theory was a complaint that black dolls were cheaper than white dolls. Okay, now. If you if you pointed out that actually the fact that black dolls were cheaper than white dolls was actually an advantage for black consumers that was based on their uh, lower buying power, that it was a way of equalizing their rate wages with their consumer power, uh, they'll just say that's a racist statement. 
mm-hmm. even if it's logical, it's racist because you, and they're right because of their lived experience. And, and so it, let's say the black belt was actually more expensive. They're still going to find a way to complain about it. Oh, and I know they will because the fact that women's haircuts cost more is proof of sexism. Yes. You know, that they, they always okay. use Whether you're statistics. paying more or less or yeah. the same, I guarantee you they'll find a way to make it a problem. Right. Uh, <laughs> so let know, me just make There's sure. a reason why they do this, by the way. See, it's only explicable if the hierarchy is being reversed. The whole thing is an inversion ideology. Why would people rush to more subordinated status? Why? Why would they demand to be more subordinate than others is because the social justice ideology flips the hierarchy on its head. Mm -hmm. It's an inversion ideology. And so being at the bottom, it means being at the top. Right. Right. Let let me just paraphrase what you said a minute ago, just to make sure the listeners got it and and that I understood you correctly. So you're saying to the extent that we do want to come up with, you know, a, a plausible reason for why, on the left, you know, with uh, celebrating transgenderism and you just your own identity, but saying, no, 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 if you were born white, you don't just get to decide I'm going to identify as black. Right. Because you haven't grown up being called the N-word and and so forth. The cops, it's a visible thing. Whatever you think you are in your head, if you have white skin, the cops aren't going to beat you up and whatnot. Okay. And so so that's why they're saying you don't get to be one of us and then get the, uh, the compensations and so forth and the sympathy that we've built up over the decades. Which is itself a benefit. So- Okay, right. If it weren't a benefit, they wouldn't be guarding the territory so closely. Okay. All right. Uh, so that that makes that makes sense. I can see that. I mean, All right. how else can you understand it? I mean, of course, that's racist to say. So. <laughs> right. Right. Um, I now I, I did want to. Why don't we? I don't want to run out of time on this, so I do want to pivot to. As you, as you know, because we communicated beforehand, I recently had um, this guy, Thaddeus Russell, mm-hmm. and I had a debate with him. And so let me first explain what his take is. Uh, there's two issues in he, here, like postmodernism and Marxism, and then also postmodernism is a foundation for liberty. So first, let me take the Marxism one. So what Thaddeus says is, just looking at the actual like definitions and what they are conceptually, postmodernism rejects meta-narratives. Right. It encourages... Uh, humility in terms of what can we possibly know about that. Yes. Whereas Marxism is a meta-narrative and you know it tells us quite explicitly, here's how history advances. There's going to be capitalism, then it's going to burst asunder and lead, but okay, so Thaddeus is saying, guys like Jordan Peterson talking about postmodernist cultural Marxists, that's like a contradiction in terms. What an idiot. So how do you feel about that? That's wrong. It's wrong. Because, okay, there's there's a couple explanations. I, I'll give Stephen Hicks's explanation in his book explaining the postmodernism. He says the epistemological relativism and subjectivism are mere screens or they're mere covers for the absolutism underlying their actual uh, mode, MO. That mm-hmm. while they pretend to be uh, relativistic and subjectivistic, they're actually uh, absolutist at base and that they're pushing an absolutism under a cover. Now, I think it's different than slightly different. I, I explain it slightly differently. When you have an anything goes epistemology, then a given one can be an arbitrary one can be imposed. Okay. With authority because you have no object world that can push back against it because the object world doesn't matter. It's your subjective beliefs that count. When belief is asserted 
as authoritative on its on its own, mm-hmm. then you can assert anything with authority that ha- and that has to believe whether it has any basis in any uh, empirical empirical uh, evidence or not. And that's exactly what's happened with transgenderism, for example. There's no empirical basis for transgenderism in terms of chromosomes for the most part. There may be anomalies, but there's you know, XXYs and XYYs are very rare. Um, so you, you have belief being enforced so that now in the university, for example, if you don't believe that there may be 48 or 72 genders, you're in deep shit. So they'll, mm-hmm. so this becomes imposed with authority and force or the threat of force. And despite the so-called willy-nilly anything goes idea of postmodernism, it leaves open the imposition when there's power in, in hand for forcing acceptance of beliefs based on their assertion alone. Mm-hmm. And, and maybe one example of, I don't know if this is the, exactly what you mean, but I noted or I noticed when I was doing research on this stuff that I believe Jacques Derrida and uh, Foucault both signed a petition to get rid of age of consent laws in France because there yeah. were some people that were, you know, sleeping with like a 13-year-olds thir- or something. Right. And I think the, the idea was, hey, who are we to to judge the, you know, whether this, this the relationships were consensual and who are we to second guess? But yet they didn't sign a petition to get rid of minimum wage laws saying, who right. are we to judge whether the worker, if they consented to it, you know, is being exploited or not. And so it does seem like an inconsistency. Like, not only that, I mean, mm-hmm. Derrida explicitly stated that his whole deconstructive, pro- uh, the, whole, the whole project of deconstruction was motivated, if not, it wasn't explicitly Marxist, but it was motivated by Marxian theorists, uh, Marxian belief. And that mm-hmm. is, he was trying to destroy power structures using lang- you know, the deconstruction of language right. as, the, as the new means to do so. But it was, it's Marxist at base in the sense that the underlying ethos is Marxist. There's this attempt, and same with Foucault with his analyses of power. He, he more or less stood Nietzsche on his head. That is, Nietzsche's will to power is the motive force of uh, being. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's what motivates everybody. But Foucault took power as the operating principle of society, but doesn't argue for its embrace but rather the opposition of the more against the more powerful, but using power to do so. Okay, so what they what they do is they assume that operative uh, mode and then oppose the dominant. That's that's the whole scheme all the way through all postmodernism. Underlying it all is a Marxist uh, premise. Uh, absolutely, they broke with Marxism, but it's Marxism they broke with, and that is important. It's like if you stand, like they say, Marx stood Hegel on his head, okay? That means he took Hegel's body or his body of thought and he flipped it on its head. But it's Hegel he flipped on his head. It's not mm-hmm. something else. So it still has the characteristics of what you inferred, okay? Right, right. So the same is true for, for postmodernism in terms of Marxism. Right, okay. Um, Does that make sense? Yeah, it, it totally makes sense. And I'll, so... It, so number one, guys like Jordan Peterson, they're not crazy for seeing this connection, this association. No, I, I'm, in fact, I'm, I'm preparing a course on uh, critical theory, which is the Frankfurt School, cultural studies and postmodern theory to explain cultural Marxism. They're all part of it. Mm-hmm. You right. can't exclude postmodern theory from cultural Marxism. It is cultural Marxism. 
Okay, great. So, it, so it's not really that they happen to go hand in hand. You're saying there's there, a deeper affinity. There's, there's a deep affiliation. There, there's a yeah. deep. There's a deep. They're cognates. You know, one is impressed by the other. Postmodernism has the both birthmarks of Marxism all over it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, and you even your answer to this the first one still kind of spills over in the second. So, so again, the the thing I was debating Thad with was he claims. Postmodernism, actually, I don't know why libertarians run run from it. Look at you. you there's yeah. a potent set of tools here by which we can limit the state. You know, with no, all their scientific the claims. First of all, postmodernists don't see all power in the state at all. Uh, Foucault, for example, Michel Foucault, he saw power as diffuse, disembodied, uh, everywhere, in all circumstances. Every kind of encounter, there's a power relation. Okay, mm-hmm. so everything comes down to power, but it's not in the state as, uh, as such. It's everywhere. Power is, you, it's like a, a broadcast of uh, broadcast uh, waves going out all over space. Power is diffuse. It has no central location. So the opposition to the state is not at all at hand. That's not what they're about. In fact, they're status all the way. Okay. okay. Because they want to impose their particular standards on everybody. Uh, and so the only way to do that is through the state. If you read Leotard, uh, the guy whose book Postmodern Condition is, 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 is the book from which postmodernism is named, his biggest concern was that the state was losing power to corporate corporations. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, and, and the idea that it's because it gives you these tools to oppose things it's not true because what it does is it gives it, it looks like it's anything goes like you you know there's there's epistemic humility but when it comes down to the um what it comes down to is just the ability to say anything goes and what we say goes uh <laughs> well yeah so that's what i was going to ask you because you said a minute ago that um you know they're, they're going to want the power to it to input their, their status through because they want to impose their views on others uh, these words of that effect and again, just it, it seems prima facie that that's like if your whole worldview is we can't be sure of any. I don't even know if I exist. Right. You would think that would make you very hesitant and careful before if that was pointing guns case, at people. Here's how Hicks puts it, and I think he's right about this. Mm-hmm. If it were the case that this skepticism were the main issue, if that were the main direction that we're going, then you'd have postmodernists of all kinds of political persuasions. Okay, Mm -hmm. they wouldn't just gravitate towards leftism, but they're all leftists. Okay, they're all hardcore leftists. So it shows you that what leads is is the 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 skepticism is a disguise or a Mm -hmm. mechanism, a means. I think it's not just a disguise; it's a means for authoritarianism. Right. And let me just talk about left, like where it came from. Why did they develop? They developed because Marxism failed. That's the main reason that postmodernism develops. The master narrative didn't work, yet they have to retain their leftism at all costs. Mm-hmm. Okay, so leftism is a, a long series of digging ourselves in a, a, a hole based on an imaginary reality and then digging ourselves out of it. I mean, that's mm-hmm. really what leftism is. It's a long series of erecting imaginary foes, okay? Right. Then finding our way out of this predicament that we've actually created ourselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this, this is interesting. Um, and also with the cultural Marxism, by the way, for people who don't know what that is, can you just briefly define what, what is the term? Okay, cultural cultural Marxism? Marxism is, is revolution by another means. So 
the idea that the worker would rise up as a collective and organized uh, would notice their immiseration, their 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 poverty, their 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 you know their oppression, their exploitation, especially. Mm-hmm. They would collect, they would internationalize, and they would overthrow capitalism. Well, it didn't happen. So they started to theorize, well, maybe it's because we need to change the workers' consciousness first. So we need to penetrate all the institutions that propagate capitalist ideology, like the state, like the media, mm-hmm. and all that. Mm-hmm. So it was a way. So Gronsky called it a long march through the institutions to create yeah. socialist ideological hegemony and counter-capitalist ideological hegemony. That's called right. for Marxism. Okay, and, and for people who haven't heard that, that's why it's like, so my background, Michael, I started out, I was like a right-winger, liked Rush Limbaugh kind of thing. Sure. Then I was like conservative, then I became libertarian, and then, and so it, it back when I was younger, and, and I knew what the, in my view, the correct economic policy was, the views were, and things like this, it just seemed like, man, this is a coincidence. It seems like, whether it's environmentalism or uh, sex education in the schools or whether it's foreign policy, like all these different issues, it's always a bigger state. What a coincidence that all yeah. these different things right. that people who just want to help the environment happen to be wrong. And so then reading you know, about Gromsky and these things, realizing that, no, it's not a coincidence. There's a, literally a strategy saying this is how we will advance socialism mm-hmm. by taking over all these other institutions That's and right. going you know that way. So I mean, I mean and and, and uh, Marcuse, the, the Frankfurt School theorist, mm-hmm. said we must undertake ideological subversion. He said it's trade up in black and white. Mm-hmm. Okay, so and the post postmodernists are ta- are doing it. After the failure of socialism and then the student rebellion in 68 also flopped, they didn't take over France and de Gaulle stayed in power. So they were like, what's wrong? We need another approach. We can't abandon leftism. My God, it's our identity. It's our soul. We can't leave it. Go. We have to find another way. So they, they created all these other means of opposition. Okay. Okay. Right. Um, this is a little bit heavy stuff. I hope it's not too much, but. No, I don't know. This is exactly what I was hoping that you could talk about. And then um, I think in your book, but also I saw you mention it, the talk you gave at the Mises Institute, this phrase, discursive violence. (laughs) So can you can you speak? Because I want to connect that to some things. But first, can you just tell us what what does that mean? Well, well, the deconstructionists, uh, Derrida, in fact, said there is no outside of text. So basically, he said. There's no outside of language. Language is, 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 is it. There's no ontologies to which language points. They don't exist. What ma- language is a, is a, uh, a, a self-referential uh, system, okay? There isn't an exterior to it. So the ontologies that you might point to are not out there. They're in the language only. So, so language becomes the means by which the world is constructed, according to them. It's linguistic constructivism. So once Mm -hmm. you give language this power to construct the world, now it has power to do violence as well. Um, And so violence, so speaking itself becomes an act. It's called, they call it an act rather than sort of a different, they don't differentiate between actions and speech. So Mm -hmm. therefore speech, speech has to be, um, speech has to be policed. It has to be policed because it, it, it constitutes violence in itself in cases. Mm-hmm. Um, so speaking against uh, 
they, they can construe anything because belief, as I said, is unconstrained by the material world. Anything can be construed as violent, any speech. Even espousing free market economics could be is violent. Right, right. Yeah. Okay, so thank you for that. And then now here's what I want to do, and I, ho- I hope I can get this across. Again, it, I was just thinking about the different elements of these cultural battles, and it seemed like there's a, a superficial tension. So I, I think I could resolve this, but I, I'm curious to get your take. Mm-hmm. On the one hand, it's like, uh, you know, the some of these extreme leftists talking about, hey, if you misgender somebody, you don't use the right pronouns, you're literally committing violence That's against violence, the person. Yeah. And like the sort of, you know, regular everyday person response is like, guys, that's crazy. They're just words. Mm-hmm. Why are you taking it so seriously? Like you're being, you know, drama queens about it or something. But yet on the other hand, the extreme postmodernists are saying words don't mean anything. Right. They don't or mean even anything. like yeah, J- James right. Lindsay on Twitter arguing with people saying two plus two could equal five. And right. so again, like the normal sort of, you know, Western rationalist response is to say, what are you talking about? Of course, words mean something. Mm-hmm. And, and of course, two plus two equals four. And I'm outraged. So do you see how it's it's weird? It's like on the one hand, the they problem, give words. It's, it's what arises when you dismiss mm-hmm. any kind of correspondence theory between language and, and the objects, between what they call the signifier and the signified. Once you, ru- once you buy into that rupture, then basically language n- neither can describe the world, but on its own has the very power to make it. So, so it's it's one and the same. It, Here, let me put it to you this way. So, I, I I like what you're saying, and I and I get that that's the solution. But let me just make sure that I want to make sure the listener at least gets why it's it's odd. It's like if words don't mean anything, or words can mean whatever you think they mean. Right. When when I call someone the wrong pronoun, and the person says that's violence, can I just say, oh no no no, what I mean by Mister is what you mean by Miss. <laughs> Yeah, you see what I'm saying? Like you're assuming there's this common also, meaning of these assuming, pronouns. And, and you're yeah. assuming that I'm a man. I never said well, that, I was a man. Uh, right. I could. I'm actually. Um, uh, what I am is an. Uh, I am a. Um, I'm a pineapple tree, and so I can't possibly commit discursive violence against you. And I don't even know what you're talking about. My, when I say he, what I really mean is a spaceship. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. So. Right. Yeah. You're right. Exactly. Right. You're assuming I was using a pronoun. That's that a concept that you're yeah. getting from Shakespeare yeah. and imposing well, on well, me. What are you you're, talking you're, about? What you're doing is you're basing the meaning on your socially constructed construal of what I'm saying. You know. Right. So, so you 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 get the how yes. on the one hand it seems that there's this tension that if words don't mean anything, how could they possibly yeah. hurt yeah, somebody? Yeah. The retort is exactly that. Yeah. Okay. So again, what would do you know? Like, what would their official position be like how would they well see it becomes absolutist whenever they want it to be so Mm -hmm. they'll pin meaning down when they want to be pinned down and they'll leave it slippery and completely disengaged when they want it to be disengaged that's what i mean about the incipient authoritarianism that's underneath of it all okay um but then in terms of connecting where where they think they're coming from is is this true just to summarize what you said a minute ago that they're saying words are light, real and they're the real reality and so whatever words you use that's making the real what it is okay right because yeah. you're like if things are social construction how people think about something is extremely important mm-hmm. language helps frame your conceptualization it, it the reality in their minds right and so that's why policing words become so important because mm-hmm. that's okay all right yeah, and uh, yeah, and then there you could look at deeper into like uh, the Frankfurt School and uh, 
Herbert Marcuse's essay, Repressive Tolerance. I won't mm-hmm. get into it, but basically he says that only leftist, lang- only leftist expression is permissible uh, because right. it's, it's the emancipatory uh, expression. Other expression is repressive and has to be repressed. Right, right. Okay. The last thing I wanted to ask you was, so again, folks, I'm looking at his book, Beyond Woke. You quote here from uh, Whitaker Chambers mm-hmm. as to what what is it that constitutes a true communist? Let me just read the, the little excerpt and then sure. have you respond to it. So he goes through, you know, you go through some superficial things and that's not really the essence. And he says, rather- yeah, it's not the essence, that's right. Yeah, I think- uh, I think these are your words and you're just paraphrasing. Rather, a true communist is one who has examined a long historical and still presently dysfunctional world, probably more negatively than most, and has arrived at the conviction that its rational and total remaking is both necessary and possible. Yeah. And so for you, you're saying that's, and you're agreeing with Whitaker Chambers, that's yeah, what that's what makes the communist. The, because there's, people drop off different, you know, different uh, clauses of, uh, so we say auxiliary clauses of Marxism, like dictatorship of the proletariat or the uh, even the labor theory of value. I'll have Marxists tell me that that's not important to them at all. They don't care about that mm-hmm. exploitation, you know, in a real strict denotive sense that Marx used. It is not important. They'll drop off auxiliary auxiliary theses when mm-hmm. when they feel like it. So at the be- at the bottom of it is this idea that we can remake the world using our rationality. Now, postmodernism, of course, drops that part out too. But anyway, yeah. Mm-hmm. But, but the world needs to be remade because right still now it's needs very to be bad. Remade, yeah, but not yeah. necessarily through rationality. Yeah, the postmodernists, but yeah. I'm saying the mark the, for the the communist. Yeah, they still they still have uh, by mid century there, and I think at base, whether they admit it or not, they're saying that. They have that the rational person looks at the world and says, this can't stand and we have to use our rationality to change it. Indeed. And that helps explain like why they want to tear down existing institutions that have produced this injustice mm-hmm. that they, they see all around yeah. and then replace it with something yeah, that they I can Yeah, I mean, construct. today's movement is, is a mix of postmodernism and Marxism. I mean, it's so entangled that it's, it would take a decade to try to undo it. Right. Okay. Well, before we close, do you want to tell us about the the new book you're working on? That's that's for it's finished. It's uh, it's oh, okay. called the Thought Criminal. Uh-uh. Uh Yes. So it's uh it's about a uh, a futuristic but not so remotely futuristic scenario in which uh, there is a collect what I call collective mind, and it's not just the uh, collective groupthink. It's an actual technology that uh, uses is used to import thoughts into the neocortex of uh, the human race using uh, nanobots. Uh, And this is all, by the way, this is all being thought of now, you know, that Mm -hmm. we can have, we'll be on the internet at all times. So, and it's, they control the influx of inputs into the brain. And I said, so at one point, this federation of pandemos, which is the state, a global state, uses a, a virus in order to connect uh, people to collective mind. And so now it becomes uh, involuntary because supposedly viruses, of course, are communicable and uh, they don't need consent. You don't have to consent to have a virus, uh, right? In fact, right. you usually wouldn't. So right. uh, they perpetrate this virus, although they say that the virus is actually the cure, it's actually the disease. And uh, 
So there's these thought deviationists who attempt to uh, keep virus free using a, a drug that is, is actually addictive as well. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> so it isn't like there's an obvious like uh, obvious anti-pharmaceutical uh, and anti-big uh, collective digital uh, domination over us. There's a kind of there's a lot of paradoxes in it. Sure, sure. Okay, well, it sounds very interesting. Yeah. Well, folks, uh, for the links of all the things we've been talking about here, go to bobmurphyshow.com slash 145. My guest has been Michael Rechtenwald. Uh, Thanks so much for taking the time to do this. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit bobmurphyshow.com.